Well, as you know, um, we just um, came from, um, we attended, we did the conference, um, Impact Conference, and uh, I was asked to preach a sermon on the jealousy of God. It's the attribute of God, the jealousy of God. And I did that. And so what happened is it kind of kindled in me desire to teach a little bit more on some of God's attributes when I, um, when I was in, in a break. And so I thought, well, maybe again, we'll just pause Colossians for several weeks, maybe three weeks or so. And I want to teach you about the truth of who that God is that we worship. I want to talk to you about uh, the transcendence of God. Uh, later on, I want to talk about the wrath of God, something that is really unspoken of among churches nowadays. And I also want to talk to you about the mercy of God, to balance it out a bit. Well, that being said, There is nothing more essential to our spiritual lives, nothing that is more awe-inspiring than God. There is none like Him in heaven above or in earth beneath. Now, I don't know if what I'm about to say was a song that I heard somewhere or a poem I read but this is my version. I remember the idea and I penned it down. And that's what I penned. If all the leaves of all the trees were processed and turned into papers, and if all the ocean water turned into ink, and we gathered all the scholars of the world and they began to describe our incomprehensible God, the God whose judgments are unsearchable. And His love is without limit. God whose mind is unfathomable. Then what would happen? All the forests would be naked. All the oceans will be dried up. And yet we'd still fail to even begin to scratch the surface in unraveling the beauty of God's attributes. And yet, we are commanded to seek, to behold the invisible. We're called to intimately know the unknowable. And to, to this end, we want to explore a glorious aspect of our God. We've got to be fearfully amazed about our God. Now, I pray as we go through today's message, today's attributes of God, that our hearts would burn with devotion to Him and it would lead us to a place where the cares of this world will be something that is negligible because we're so focused on God's attributes. Or even better, to bring these cares of this world, all our anxieties, and to place them at His feet. And then after we place them at His feet, that we would ascend above them all and praise His glorious name. Now, what are we going to be studying about today? We're going to be talking about two attributes together. 
We're going to talk about the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Imminence. Now, why two attributes in one message? Well, these two attributes must be bundled together. They're presented as twin sisters. They're both um, the head and tail of the same coin. Once we begin to know about these two attributes, you will discover that to preach one without the other could lead to a um, misunderstanding or painting the wrong picture of the glory of God. They would render the God of the Bible either weak or uh, impersonal. And it wouldn't be the God of the, the Bible that we worship. And by the way, many, many theologians of the past, faithful ones, when they taught, they taught these two attributes together. And I believe this is right and proper, that we ought to present these two together so that we have the balanced view of the God of the Bible. Now, okay, uh, you may be a little lost. Well, I mean, what does this transcendence mean and imminence mean? Um, now, they seem to be complicated because a bit lengthy words and that, and we hardly use them, but they're a lot simpler than what they appear to be. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a contrast between the two. Remember, they're um, two sides of the same coin. In one hand, transcendence, the transcendence of God, it basically means that God is very far. Imminence. God is very near. Transcendence means God dwells in an unapproachable light. James tells us that. Imminence means God is approachable. Transcendence meaning God is far removed from his creation. He's distinct. He is separate. While imminence means that God is intimately involved in his world. In one hand, God, that heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. And yet on the other hand, imminence means God who is everywhere. And we are called to worship such a, a mysterious God who is both transcendent and imminent all at the same time. How unfathomable. Right? How inscrutable are, is his being? I mean, try to explain this God to someone who doesn't have a true, genuine relationship with him, one whose mind is only tainted with sin, and you see him being thrown off into confusion. It's mind-boggling. How? how? It's, it almost comes across as oxymoron. How can it be that our God is both transcendent and yet imminent at the same time? But to us who are saved, when we understand what actually means, these two attributes together, nothing brings joy to our hearts more than to greatly fearing at such a, a transcendent God and yet at the same time, our hearts would be full of love for him because of his imminence. Now, why is that? Why is it the case? Well, now we're going to break down these two attributes one at a time. We're going to begin with the transcendence. I hope I haven't lost you yet. 
And if you don't know, well, that's the whole purpose of the message so that you can understand so that you would know. Okay, so we'll begin with transcendence. Now, this word is not found in the Bible, but it does summarize a, a very biblical concept of, of who God is. And it's kind of missing in our culture. Many people just have no fear of God and they sin and an absolute defiance to God because they don't understand what it means that God is transcendent. Now, what does it mean that God is transcendent? Basically, it means that God is infinitely exalted above all creation in His majesty, in His greatness, in, in His holiness. It means that He rises above, that He's beyond His creation. Out of reach. Now, how is He transcendent? First, He's transcendent Literally, literally, he is above his creation. Literally. Um, he's infinitely beyond the physical world. Now, when want to pause here. and When you talk to an atheist, atheists foolishly say, there's no God. Well, why is that? Why did you conclude that there is no God? Oh, well, I can't see him. Well, you don't see God because he is a transcendent God. He lives outside and beyond time and space. If, if you could see God, you know, now follow the train of thought. If you could see God, it would mean that God lives within this world, right? Which means that God is part of the creation. Then wouldn't it then mean that he's not a creator if you would see him? It would mean that he's not a creator because he's part of his creation. And it's absurd. What does that mean? You never see an author of a book that you read to be within that book, right? That's not how it works. A producer of the movie is not a character in the movie. And then what makes you then think that God would reside within his creation as the evidence that he actually exists? And the, the Bible tramples upon this evil idea. And the Bible insists that God exists outside of time and space. When God created the world, the Bible says that he's far above his creation. Deuteronomy 4 verse 39 says, Yahweh, he is God in heaven above. Psalm 113 verse 5, it says, Who is like Yahweh, our God, who is enthroned on high? Well, that's for an atheist. Now, in one hand, yes, we have an atheist that claims that God doesn't exist. But on the other hand, we have what we call pantheists. It's very simple. What is pantheists? Some people who believe, on, they say Mother Earth is God. That they deny the existence of a distinct God separate from his creation. And they say everything is God. How many of you watched the Avatar movie? Right? 
Yeah, that blue big guy with a ponytail. And what does he do? He gets his ponytail. And what does he do? He sticks it to a tree. And when he sticks it to a tree, what happens? He kind of like, you know, he's connected to Mother Earth, God. And so God flows through him, right? And so you ask these people, well, where is God? They say, well, he's not outside of his creation. Every part of creation is God. Now, this is nothing more than a satanic assault against the transcendence of God. Romans 4 verse 17. And by the way, there are many, many people in this um, culture we live in that are strongly moving towards that direction. Romans 4 17 says, God calls into being that which does not exist. He calls into being that which does not exist, meaning our transcendent God, when He created the world, what did He do? He didn't rip out a bone out of His bones and then created the world out of that. He didn't take part of His body and spat on it, and so therefore the world was created. He didn't, he didn't lay, an, lay an egg. He didn't give birth to someone. The world is not part of God. What did he do? He created the world out of nothing. Out of nothing. Which means the world that God created is not part of God. God is separate. He is distinct. And King Solomon understood this concept. That when, when he came to build the temple and he understood that God doesn't really live within his creation... What did he say in 1 King 8, 27? He said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. God is totally distinct from his creation. Now, there is more to it than that. Because when we speak about the transcendence of God, it's not only referring to the mysterious, literal GPS location of who God, where God is. It's not just about that. It's a lot more deeper than that. Because what else does it mean that God is transcendent? It speaks of the quality of God. He's qualitatively, if you would say, transcendent. Completely different being. What does this mean? Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Now this verse, it shouldn't just be interpreted literally. It speaks... More specifically about the greatness of our God. How He's towering over, over and above all in, in majesty, in beauty. God is above all in His royal dignity. When it says that God is high and exalted one, it means He's the one who rests on His throne unchallenged. Unchallenged. Transcendent, meaning God only in Him, 
Only in God there is abundant life. Only in Him there is that fullness of joy like nowhere else in the world. To be transcendent, He is transcendent. Let's have a look at perhaps maybe three, three different attributes. Sovereignty. He's transcendent in His sovereignty. We have sovereign governments. But when we speak about God and His sovereignty, it's different. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Unparalleled reign. Unmatched lordship. What God says goes. God is absolutely sovereign. If all wicked men of the world gathered together and somehow squeezed themselves into your own house and they all conspired with all the demons and decided that today you must die, they wouldn't even be able to touch one strand of your hair unless God gives them the green light. Think of this for a little while. Brothers, when we trust in a transcendent God, He will free us from the fear of man and He will fill us with hope. Now, not only is God transcendent in His sovereignty, but also in His greatness, He's transcendent. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, God's greatness is unsearchable. It's transcendent. Psalm 104, verse 1, it says, O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You are very great. What does that mean? It means you are clothed with splendor and majesty. Splendor and majesty. They're not, you know, external things that God would put on. They are part of His very essence. Unlike men, God has no need to add something to himself in order to kind of make himself more beautiful or more glorious. Clothed with majesty, clothed with splendor. When you look at the popes, whether Catholic popes, Orthodox popes, or look at the ancient kings, what do they wear? They wear massive, big clothes, right? Big shoulders, great, great clothes, great crowns. And it's almost like, you know, the one who's got a bigger crown and greater crown, he's, he's the more powerful king, right? And why? Why do they do this? You know why? They want to instill fear. Inner people. They want to demand respect. They want you to think that they are only half human, but the other half, they're divine. Right? But then what happens when I want to go to the toilet? 
What happens when I want to have a shower? Take off the crown. Oh, wait a second. I've got a bald head like mine. They take off their clothes. And what happens? Their shoulders are slouching. Skinny legs. Belly. Right? They're just mere humans. It's not real. But when the scripture speaks of God's greatness, it's unsearchable. Unsearchable. I remember my son, Lucas, he, uh, when, he, when he used to go to school, before he was homeschooled, in grade three, one day he came home and he said to me, Dad, Dad, guess who I saw at the school? And I asked him, well, who did you see? He said, Roberto Carlos. Roberto Carlos. Now, Roberto Carlos, who's he? He's a, a Brazilian soccer player. He was, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago. He was the greatest player ever. And I remembered when he said this back then, he used to love watching soccer. And I watched a documentary where Roberto Carlos came out and in that documentary, he would say something along the line with, I'm the best. That was at the peak of, of his career. I'm the best. And I remember he said this. He said, of course, they were translating it in that documentary. There are many good soccer players in the world, but there is one God of soccer, and it's me. <laughs> That's what he said 30 years ago. Where is he now? Who knows anything about him? What does he look like? I'd like to see his belly. What is, how big is it if he's still alive? I had a, before I was born again a long time ago, I had a friend of mine who used to do bodybuilding and, you know, show off with his body in front of people, you know, half, uh, not half naked, what is it, like almost, almost fully naked. And he used to work hard and compete and he used to go with him and cheer him on and all the rest of it. And he, he I mean, he was ripped. But I remember, poor boy, used to eat all the time. Drink water. You know, 90% is it? 90% of your muscles are water. Drink all the time. Eat the right food. These are the bodybuilders, right? Take away food from them for two days. Take away water from them for two days. What will they look like? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The glory of man is like flower. It just fades away. Millionaires become poor. Strong men become weak. Beautiful people become ugly. It's all fake. And they want to impress you with something that is really not true. Not true. Even the riches of the world will fade away. Will go one day. Rich people die the same way poor people would be. In the grave, decomposed with nothing that they can carry with them. But God's greatness never diminishes. Always beautiful. 
God is transcendent, brothers and sisters, in His greatness. I think I have time for one more. God's greatness in His thoughts. He's great in His thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. How come? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What does this mean? It means who would dare to say, I know the mind of God. I'm very familiar with how he thinks. God's thoughts and ways transcend our finite understanding. What does this mean? When we are tempted, brothers and sisters, When we come to a point where we would compromise our devotion to Him because of, let's say, we want more money. Okay? And then He would ask a brother, well, why do you want more money? I want more security. I want more peace. Right? Well... What do you take into account to conclude that sacrificing your dedication to God for earthly gain will lead you to have more security and more peace? Let's bring it on the table. Let's discuss. Let's reason together. What did you take into account? Did you take into account all that is going on in the present time? Did you take into account the future, your, your future sickness and diseases and the climax and everything else? How long in the future have you taken into consideration when you have concluded it is right and it's good for me to sacrifice my dedication to God on the altar of money? How long in the future have you thought ahead? 10 years? 10,000 years? Million years? When God tells us that only His way is right, He takes into account everything. Everything. From the subatomic movement of the electrons in the snowflakes in the Mount Everest to the unfolding of history and economy of the world. He sees the end of all things from the beginning. He knows all things. God is a, is a divine music conductor and he accomplishes the symphony of his sovereign will flawlessly. As he directs the events of history. And this God, this transcendent God, says, My thoughts and ways are transcendent. They rise above all your thoughts. Brothers, this truth humbles us. It should remind us that we cannot comprehend the reasons behind his actions or his purposes, right? We can, we can take comfort in knowing that God's way, ways are perfect. When we're going through a hard time, 
Brothers, we must remind ourselves that we may not know what is going on or where we're heading, but it's okay with our souls. Why? Because although we may be oppressed or confused, but our loving Heavenly Father knows what He's doing. He's the transcendent Almighty God who holds all things with the grip of His hands. No one is holding Him. Only Him holding everything. And this transcendent God promises that He will take care of His people, of His children. We better trust in Him. He is transcendent. So just to wrap up this point, God is transcendent. It means that He alone is self-sufficient. He's immutable, infinite, eternal, perfect, sovereign God. Is there any creature like Him? No. No one is worthy of honor and reverence. Who's like him? No one. He's to be feared. He's to be admired. He's to be placed in a class of his own. And we worship him this way as a transcendent God. All right? He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. Now we come to the, the other side of the coin. Imminent, meaning near us. In his imminence, God chooses to draw close to us. Now, what does it mean, imminent? God is near us. He is present with us. He's not just uh, present in our midst when we pray together, together, but even when everyone goes home to his daily challenges, God is present with everyone. Preeminence meaning that God permeates, He infuses everything. To be imminent means that God is active on earth, involved in our world. He's present and active in nature, in history, in our lives. He acts in this world and dwells within His people. Simply put, God is everywhere. However, we must be very, very careful when we say that God is everywhere. We don't want to leave room for false teachers. Right? In what sense is it that God is everywhere? In what sense? Again, New Age Movement and pantheism and all this stuff. They say, well, since God is everywhere, therefore everything is God or an extension of God. You see, here you are saying that God is everywhere. That's what the Bible teaches. Therefore, we can say everything is God. You are God. I am God. Find God in you. That's what they say, right? So we have to be very careful what we mean that God is everywhere. Is God sitting on that chair in front of you or next to you? Is God is this chair God? What does it mean God is everywhere? I want to give you three ways that the scripture teaches that God is imminent in his universe. First, in his power 
and authority. Power and authority. Ability to control and right to control. Power and authority. That's the first thing. Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, i.e. His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. God is everywhere here. In what sense? In the sense that God's power governs the laws of nature in the universe. There is no electron that orbits around any atom in this universe without the power of God regulating it, enforcing it. That's what it means that God resides in his creation simply by controlling it. Power. Also authority, exercising authority over it. He has the right to rule as the reigning king over all the affairs of the world. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God has the right to rule. Right? The scripture says of God that he is the king of kings. Meaning God's authority is imminent throughout all universe. So we have to understand this. We need to understand that no one can ever say, hey, over here, let's run to this corner or that corner. Why? Well, God doesn't rule. He doesn't have the right to rule in that corner over there. So let's go. No one can say that. Nor does God have the right to rule only Christians. And somehow, unbelievers, they can do whatever they want. I heard some people say to me, well, since I'm not a Christian, I don't have to abide by God's law. I don't have to love my wife. I don't have to submit to my husband. I don't really have to even abide by the Ten Commandments. I'm not a Christian. Nor is it only limited to a slot of time. You know, like the 1,000 years of reign where Jesus will come and reign on his throne for 1,000 years on earth. And that's the only time when he has the right to rule. Brothers, God has the right to rule everyone Everywhere, all the time. When he commands us, we're under obligation to obey him. Okay, that's what it means that God is imminent. That's what it means that God is everywhere. Ability and right to rule. Second, his knowledge. His knowledge. Philippians 1 verse 8. For God, Paul is saying this, for God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Many, many times biblical writers, they appeal to the witness of God. Why is that? Because God sees everything in his universe. There is nothing that would obscure what God sees. Nothing, nothing is hidden from the eyes of the all-seeing God. 
Please note what God sees in this verse. It says, for God is my witness. Meaning, God is seeing something here. He's witnessing something. What is it that God sees? Pay attention. How I long for you all. The longing of Paul. God doesn't just see what you wear or what you eat. It means that God sees your thoughts. Every last one of them. He knows your heart. He looks beyond your words. With God's divine x-ray vision, He stares at your soul. He knows what is going on inside of you. You know, Superman comes in movies with this uh, infrared supervision that he can see through walls. But if you put Superman in, in one side, you would, he would be blind in comparison to what God sees. God sees everything, the visible and the invisible. God sees the great pyramids in Egypt standing there in the middle of the desert. And yet, at the same time, he would see all the little water creatures dancing in the darkness at the bottom of the ocean. So God is present throughout his creation. How? He's present by his power and authority. He's present... By his knowledge. And in those two senses, God is imminent in his universe. But by no means, uh, this chair is God or God is sitting on that chair. That doesn't make sense. He's not, he's not the chair or sitting on it. He's not a, a, he's not a, a, a cow. Uh, rocks are not part of God. That's all wrong. There's false teachers that you will see everywhere around us. They speak lies. And this is how you tackle this. You would say, well, God holds a cloud by his power. That does not mean that the cloud is God. Or just because God sees my thoughts... It would be silly to conclude, therefore, that my thoughts are God. Right? But there is a third way that God is present. That God is imminent. And I believe this is the sweetest of our hearts and I left it for last. This is the best way that God demonstrated to us that He is imminent. And this applies... To his people, his loved ones, the ones that he redeemed. Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the son of God. He came to earth. He wrapped himself in human flesh. And what does the scripture say? His name is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. He walked in our dirt, right? His lungs breathed our polluted air. He lived among us in a broken home. He became like us in every way except for sin. Brothers, this is not a God who is far removed from us. 
you know, uncaring or cold towards our needs. He actually became one of us so that his people could enjoy fellowshipping with him forever. He drew, he drew so ever near to us so that we would become so in love with him. God who dwells in unapproachable light reached down to us. Even Jesus who is co-equal with God. He humbled himself in a form of a man to reach to us. And this, brothers and sisters, displays fireworks of imminence that is worthy to be praised. God showed his love to be so near to his people. In his compassion to his people. In his suffering on the cross and his resurrection and his irresistible grace and his indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. But there's another way that he shows how much he loves to be near us. In his love and willingness to be so imminent towards his bride. In one hand, his transcendence means that God is high, exalted, and from his position, he would look down and he hates sin. He abhors sin, and it leads us to fear him and be in reverence of him. But the Son of God, all at the same time, was nailed to the cross. And out of his side, his blood came gushing out and his heart was ripped apart because he suffered the wrath of God. All that. So that he would call upon his people to come. Right? To come to him. To be so near to him. He abolished That barrier, because precisely he wants to be so imminent towards us. And he would say, come and enjoy fellowshipping with me. Come and leave behind all worldly pleasures so that you would find pleasure in me. Come, I will save you. All that, brothers and sisters, so to magnify his imminence. All that, so to be near to his chosen people. God's imminence barreled through all of our sins, all of our flaws and corruption to make our hearts His abiding home. Oh, how our God is so unequal to any God, any false God in this world. Oh, how He's so different from the God of Islam, who is so cold and harsh, who knows nothing but judgment. No imminence. Even the impersonal gods of the Catholic and the Orthodox. With those people, in order for them to reach out to God, they've got to go through a priest or Mary or some icons. That's not the God of the Bible. Praise be to God. Blessed is His name. That is not who He is. The God of the Bible cannot be any nearer to His own people. 
He lives within them. 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, We are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Again, the Bible says that he who is joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. Ephesians 3.19, Paul prays that the church would be filled up with all the fullness of God. That is, out of all the people of the world, God dwells in his own people in a very unique way that is not the same as he is present everywhere in the world. God is present to his people, the believers, not only in a sense of his power, authority, and knowledge. No, it is far more personal than anything else. How is it that God is present with those who believe in him differently from unbelievers? How? Only in every way. This is a privilege for us to cherish. We've got to cherish these brothers and sisters. In every way, he is present in me and with me in a way that unbelievers cannot claim and cannot enjoy. How? experience we get to experience God in a real dynamic genuine ways that unbelievers cannot he shows us how near he is to his people in his love for them and them experiencing that love Ephesians 5 verse 5 in his peace towards you, Philippians 4, 7. In the joy that he gives you that no one else can have, Galatians 4, 21. In the way he empowers you to change and to grow in fellowshipping with him in such a way that in your pain or ease, in your failures or success, even in the darkest moments of your life, you are never alone. Communion with Christ. Be comforted, brothers and sisters, in the name of God who is imminent in you. Be exceedingly glad you are never without a companion. You're always with a good friend. And it just happened that this companion, this friend of yours, is the eternal, immortal, invisible God, the transcendent God who longs to be intimate with you. So much that when even your sins stood in the way between you and him, he did not spare his only begotten son, but deliver him up for you. Oh, how transcendent God, that transcendent God yearns for, he longs for, he deeply desires to be so intimate with his own people. This is not alluding who he is. In no way are we ever going to preach false to you. If you don't believe me, wait for next week. We'll, sp we'll speak on the wrath of God. <laughs> but let not anybody 
Not a devil, not an unbeliever, not a false teacher, nothing, not even your own thoughts. Take this away from you. But God longs to be with you. That's the imminence of God. Hosea 11 verse 8. Let me share with you the heart of God for his people. He says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? That's an unbeliever, an unbelieving community. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. That is the heart of God that it speaks to us through his imminence. God is transcendent in his imminence towards you, brothers and sisters. Think about this for a moment. What does this mean? It means that God in his sovereignty, in his greatness, eternality, immutability, he passionately desires to be intimate with you. He fervently, zealously is so pleased to be with you and in you. Shame on us. Many times he is more pleased to be in us than we are pleased that he is in us. But that's the truth. That's the very humbling truth. Very humbling. And his love for you, he would say, what is it that I would not give up for my people to open their hearts to me so that I would infuse the aroma of my imminence in them. I have to skip a few things because we're coming to the end and just go straight to the conclusion. I want to conclude with this. Psalm 139 verse 7. It says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And here I want to direct the conclusion to those among us who have hard time, trials, broken, brokenness. This, this verse here speaks of his imminence, right? Believer, in your despair, do you feel sometimes you had enough? I'm going to be... The next Jonah. I want to run away as far as I possibly can from God, from this thing, Christian living. Praise God, Christian. No way. It's not going to happen. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Rhetorical questions implying I cannot. God's imminence will not let this happen. Do you feel like you walked away so far, so far away from God? And you just don't want to, you don't know how to come back to Him? Your sin so great in your eyes that you don't know how to come back to God? Well, God whispers loudly inside of you, I will never leave you nor forsake you, my son, my daughter. Do you feel so lonely? Perhaps you're the only believing person in your family or 
Somehow you find it difficult to get along with other believers in the body of Christ. Whatever it is that makes you feel lonely. What do you do? What should you do in a lot of what we study? Speak to your soul. Speak. It's okay. You're not crazy when you speak to your soul. You're only crazy if you have this dialogue going on. But if you speak to your soul, you're not not crazy. Speak and say, I have Christ. I have Christ in me. That is enough. Are you facing harsh circumstances in your life? Too heavy to bear? Tell your soul, why, oh my soul, do you seek the comfort of what will pass away when behold, the transcendent God is your lover and he is within you? Why would you want to seek the comfort? Where comfort will never be found. You have this God who rises above all creation. And he condescended and he now lives within you. Why would you want to seek comfort from somewhere else? You have harsh circumstances. Go to him. He is imminent. Brothers, if Yahweh was enough for Daniel in his den, if Christ was enough for Paul in his prison cell, if Jesus was enough for John in the island of Patmos, why? You can say this to your soul. Why, oh my soul, do you think that he is not enough for you in your trial? So yes, God does dwell in an unapproachable light. But yet, because Jesus, our king, our prophet and high priest, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Christ is imminent. He loves to carry your burden, brothers. He delights when you hide under the shadow of his wings. He gently upholds you and preserves you. Like the psalm says, whether at your right hand or your left, He's constantly fighting for you to protect you. Who wouldn't love this kind of God? Who? Why would we not want to go out of our way and pursue to enjoy this God that we will never be bought of, to be so transcendent and yet so imminent at the same time and everything in between? What a God. What a God. Unbelievers. God is transcendent. He's so great. As good as it is true for believers, it's terrifying for you unbelievers because you are not facing a weak God who does not know how to avenge for his honor. You're facing a God who's far more powerful than you could ever imagine. You cannot run away from Him. You cannot hide from Him. 
They say you can run, but you can't hide. But with this kind of imminent God, you cannot run nor hide. He's always there, always looking, always seeing. And yet, he's so transcendent in his love and mercy. And he offers you today to come, come out with your sin to Jesus Christ. He calls upon you with the burden that you're carrying, that is your sin, to carry that burden to the cross of Jesus and no more. Lay your sin at the feet of Christ. Open your heart. Tell him, from now on, I want you, your forgiveness, your mercy. Why would you want to carry your burden of your sin any longer when you have such a wonderful Savior who would carry that burden for you, grant you his perfect righteousness, and so that without you doing any good works, apart from any goodness that you do or in you, he would offer you his perfect righteousness to stand blameless before a holy God. Why would you not trade your sin for his goodness, for his righteousness? Why would you not do, want to do that? I tell you, in a moment, in that twinkle of an eye, the moment you come to Christ and you tell him, here are all my sins, Jesus. Take them all. In that moment, he says, I will not cast you out. You are mine. He would hug you by faith. Believe that to be true. That he will take you into his chest and he will never let go of you. I plead with you sinners. I plead with you those of you who are right now under the wrath of God. Come to Christ when there is time. Come to him and he will offer you mercy. Forgiveness of sins. When you deserve nothing but judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God. You're, you're a great God. Wow. We boast in the fact that we belong to you. We boast. Let us never forget. Who you are, let us take in the truth about you, that you are transcendent and imminent at the same time. Let us hug and cherish this truth and take it with us in our trials, in our temptations, in our battlefield when we are making wars against the devil, against our flesh and the world. Would you please remind us of this truth? Give us the power, the ability to reflect on this truth until we come and see you face to face, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.